0: Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is mixer, producer, and mastering engineer Mike Cave. First of all, if you're not part of the MLC and you're a songwriter, well, then what are you waiting for? Actually, you have to be, if you want to get paid, at least mechanical royalties. So what is the MLC It's the Mechanical Licensing Collective. It's a nonprofit, and it was actually created under the auspices of the Music Modernization Act. It's only there for one reason, to administer blanket mechanical licenses for digital media, but only one kind of digital media, interactive streaming, which means Spotify, which means Apple Music, which means Deezer, and any streaming network like that that's interactive. Now this organization is going to collect the money on mechanical licenses and then distribute it to publishers and songwriters. The whole thing is if you're not registered, you don't get paid. So a couple things have to happen. You have to register and you have to register all your works so they can actually be matched to what's being played. If there's no match, you don't get paid. The good thing about this is you should get paid every month once it gets going, and it is going already. As of January 1st, the first bunch of royalties went out. There's only about 4,000 songwriters so far. Now again, you don't have to worry about this if you're signed to a publisher, because the publisher is going to take care of this. But if you're an independent songwriter, this is something that you want to do. Now, don't forget, there are actually several different royalties for streaming. In this case, for interactive streams, There are three. There's the sound recording itself, which is what you're going to get paid on if you're an artist. But for songwriting, there's actually two different revenue streams. One is called performance and the other is mechanical. So the MLC only collects mechanical royalties. That's all. And it only collects one more time on interactive services. Non-interactive services like Pandora or Sirius XM, nope, they don't take care of that. The MLC is not without controversy. For one thing, it's paid for by all the streaming networks. So nothing comes out of your royalties. That's a good thing. But the streaming networks are actually paying for it to be in existence. That being said, it was a law that actually put it into existence. So in a way, it's a government agency. Now, once again, if you want to get paid, you have to go and register and register your works. Where do you go? You go to themlc.com. That's T-H-E-M-L-C, all one word, themlc.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs. will help you take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com. To learn more now, I thought I'd spend a little bit of time on LUFS today what are LUFS well loudness units relative to full-scale LUFS there's a lot of misunderstanding about this but you should understand first of all that it's a measurement of audio loudness but it's actually two things it's a combination of human perception and the electrical signal intensity. This was designed mostly because of movies and television, and more television than anything else. The reason why there was a time, you probably don't remember if you're fairly young, that commercials were so much louder than the regular program. They'd be blasting you out of your seat. And as a result of all the complaints that happened, the FCC actually passed a law that said, okay, from now on, you have to comply with this brand new LUFS measurement. Now, there's actually three measurements involved here. There's one that's called integrated, and what this measures is one level for the entire program. So in other words, if your program is 30 minutes long, it measures the average of that 30 minutes. If you're only talking about a three minutes song, well, that's what it measures, that three minute song. This is the measurement that we're usually concerned with. There's also two other ones. There's one called short-term which measures only the last three seconds. And then there's another one called momentary that measures pretty much like a peak meter. So it's looking right now within about 400 microseconds of the signal intensity. Now, here's the thing. Everybody kind of knows that the Lufs level for Spotify and for many other streaming networks is minus 14. And for Apple Music, it's minus 16. So they try to mix for that level. But here's the thing it doesn't matter what level you mix to. In other words, Luff's doesn't really matter because no matter what you send in, they're going to re-encode it to their particular level. So even though Apple Music is minus 16, you can send something in at minus 16, they'll re-encode it anyway, so it just doesn't matter. You don't see mastering engineers worrying about this at all, and that kind of gives you an indication that you shouldn't either. Just get the best level that works for you and use that. However, if you're delivering to a television network or for a podcast, then there's probably delivery specs that you'll get that will map out exactly the level that they want. The bigger thing to worry about when it comes to music is dynamic range. The more dynamic range you have, the better off. So what happens here with LUFS, it gives you an idea of dynamic range but relative to what the 0 dB full scale is. That being said, it's also a good indication of your dynamic range. The less dynamic range you have, the worse it sounds on streaming. And the more you have, the better it's going to sound. So for instance, if your master is at minus six luffs, it's probably going to sound pretty bad streaming. Might sound good in the radio, but on streaming, not so much. If it's minus 12 or minus 14, I think you'll find you're going to like it a lot better, and so will your listeners. So, there's a lot of misconception. There's a lot of mystery around luffs. But it's not really anything that you have to concern yourself with unless you're delivering for broadcast. Just deliver the best mix you can at a level that works for you. My guest this week is Mike Cave who's a multi-platinum, award-winning record producer, mixer, and mastering engineer. Over the course of his career, Mike has worked with artists as diverse as Elvis Costello, KRS-One, Louis Capaldi, Fatboy Slim, Bob Dylan, Echo and the Bunnymen, and many more on award-winning and record-breaking releases. He's also the owner of Loft Mastering, a high-end mastering facility based in Liverpool. During our interview, we talked about getting into mastering, mastering while mixing, Becoming a project finisher, his plug-in strategy, and a whole lot more. I spoke with Mike via Zoom from a studio in Liverpool. I wanna go back to when you started. You were originally a player in a band, right? You were a drummer, right?
1: Yeah. Do you know what was funny? I was I was just I had a quick look on your website before and I realized that you signed to polygram years ago. Yeah. And I did as well. You, like when um it was it was actually mercury records at the time but it was under polygram under that banner so that would have been like back in 96 maybe 95
0: 96 well it was the 80s for me
1: yeah well i mean polygram's yeah that was that was their time wasn't it yeah. um so yeah i've had that experience which to be fair was great it didn't i mean we got dropped <laughs> we got dropped in the end but i mean that was um that was a really invaluable experience for me. That because you know that question that people have when they come into the industry of like, what what exactly does a producer do again? It's like, and obviously there's a hundred answers to that. And 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 that just being able to what as an artist watch, you know, really good producers working. That was um, and at that time there was no other way to get in the room unless you're a t boy or something. Yeah, you wouldn't be in party to watching those the process, you know. So um, that was really invaluable. And I think we were, we were with Mercury Records for about four years. So, you know, it took way too long to make the records. We it was badly a and hard, but we still had a really good learning experience from it.
0: Did you go right into the studio when you were finished with that?
1: Well, to be fair, I was already, um, I was a very early adopter of Pro Tools. So I, I already had a, a little Pro Tools rig of my own. And I was doing a lot of the programming for the band, uh, so I was quite involved in the, in the actual process of making the records as, as an artist um, not so much engineering, but doing a lot of programming. And um, like most of the sessions, I was actually set up in another room with my little Pro Tools rig and we were passing stuff back and forth to tape. And so I was already sort of doing a little bit of engineering back then. And then I was fishing around for assistant jobs in studios at the same time as working in the band. So by the time the band finished up, I was already at Par Street Studios in Liverpool, which was, I mean, was and still is a great facility. And we were really lucky to have that here. Um, We would, I mean, I guess back in the day then, it was the biggest studio outside of London in the UK. We had a really uh, great SSL room and a great Neve VR room. And we had a little mastering room, which is where I started learning about mastering. And a little demo room where we were doing a lot of the up and coming bands and um, you know we were just coming and I, I learned how to work really fast in those sessions because you know we were doing like an ep in a day or a couple of days you know crazy stuff so and funny enough some of those records are the most exciting records that you know i was working on because we didn't have time to like second guess them we were just throwing them together whatever felt good was good you know so that was a good learning curve as well. It was, um, it was a great place to be, Par Street. And it's still going now and they're still busy. So um, it says a lot about the place, you know.
0: When you decided to open your own studio, did you have mastering in mind right away?
1: No. I, I was doing my my first, as I say, my first experience getting into, I wouldn't even call it mastering at this stage, but it was in Par Street. They had like what we would call an editing room and they had uh, the first sound tool system which was just a two track digital editing system. So, and one of the, one of the engineers who had been there a little bit longer than me showed me sound tools. So what we were doing, we were only really using that room for like stereo edits and just, um we had, do you remember the TC finalizer, which was, looking back now, it was bloody terrible, but, but um that was, it's probably started the loudness wars actually that that machine, <laughs> but, but, um we had one of those, and and sound tools, and and a, and a couple of DAP machines, and we. So that was my first introduction into sort of let's call it post mixing. And then what I t- what I was doing then was all the records that we were with, that I was involved with either produ- producing or mixing or engineering. Someone would have to take the tapes down to London for whoever was cutting cutting it. So I'd always vote, I'd always, I'd be like, I'll take the tapes. And then I just used to sit on on as many mastering sessions as, as I could and just ask a lot of questions and be mildly annoying <laughs> when they're trying to work. And and that was how I got into mastering, but it was very much like I wasn't confident with it at that time. It was very much like a black art back then. They didn't used to share a lot of information, as you know, and, and um there was one session that I did that um I used to always take what I call mock masters with with us. I mean, it's quite common to do now, but back then, not many people were doing this where you, you just have a limited version that everyone had been listening to. And I used to take that down and say, okay, this is what we've, has been approved. Can you just better that basically? And there was one session that I did. And the guy said, he turned around and said to me, you know what, this is pretty good. I don't know if I can better this. And, and I really trusted that guy. And, you know, I was, I was taking a lot of stuff to him at the time. And that was the moment where the penny dropped and thought, you know what, maybe I could be just doing this myself. So that gave me the confidence then to start doing a lot of mastering myself. And I set up uh, Loft Mastering. And that was about 15 years ago now. So uh, And that's been really busy ever since. And we've gone from, I I was a very early adopter of STEM mastering as well, before anyone was really, I mean, a lot of the mastering engineers were really frowning on it at the time maybe that's because they didn't really understand it they were just used to stereo or or whatever but I was doing a lot of mixing at the time so for me it just felt like part of the process you know but but I think what the key thing the key change in the industry that I noticed is that people were making records in a different way you know people started making records in their bedrooms and not necessarily with skilled engineers and great mixers so we've we've ended up in a situation now where people are delivering records that are actually delivering records for mastering that are very vibey, but sonically just not sounding like a record. And it's like, well, okay, you've got a couple of options here. We can either go and get a mixer and remix it, um, which isn't always ideal because sometimes you can just lose a bit of the magic or we can take the stem mastering route. And this is often, I I am doing so much of it nowadays and it's a, it's a solution for those projects that are almost like eighty percent projects, and they're like the vibes great, but they just don't sound like records. No. And it's like you try and do this, something with the stereo version, and you just compromise and things. So the stem mastering route's brilliant for that, for those type of situations. I think where you can really take things, you know, onto a whole new level just from stems and keep the magic that was in the mix. So, so yeah, I was an early adopter of that, and. And I was just started pinching a lot of work off the big heavyweight mastering guys really on that basis and grew it from there, you know, a couple of
0: things. First of all, it seems like you're a finisher more than yeah. a mastering engineer. Uh, well, you, you're doing both, but you're going beyond mastering really.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very much how I've pitched to the UK labels as a finisher of records. Cause there's a lot of great producers out there that are not very good finishers, So I work really well with those guys where you know they get it to a certain point but it's almost like they hit a wall and then you know what it's like with you we're only human at the end of the day and we we lose our perspective with things we all do it so you know i'm working with producers who've spent a month in a room on a on a on a a record and they they just need some sort of input to finish it you know from from a, a, a fresh pair of ears that they trust so A lot of my work, and if you look at my discography, a lot of it's like additional production, mixing and mastering. I've just, I think over the years, even though I've done a lot of production work in the past, I've just gravitated towards finishing records because I just think it it just suits me. And I I just feel comfortable doing it. People are happy with the results. And I just think if you try and do too much, um, you just dilute what you do, I think. You know, if you try and be great at everything. So I've just found that that's what I do. That's what I do well. And you know, I'm sticking to it.
0: I ask this of every mastering engineer, and I'm always surprised at the answer I get. (laughs) When did you get to the point where you felt in mastering now? Okay, I got this. I'm not questioning myself. I'm pretty confident in whatever you give me, I'm going to make it better.
1: I think, I mean, I've always, I've always said this, that trying to explain mastering to people, because to some people it is still a dark art you know they're not quite sure what goes on and i try and simplify it as much as possible and to be fair i can do it in one word and it's translation that to me is everything so i think to answer that question when i started hearing records that i've mastered out in lots of different environments and it sound sounding great and people enjoying them and, and i guess being moved by it, that's what music's all about to me is like can you make can you drag as much emotion out of a record and a much, as much drama as possible, and when I'm out in the car or in a club and you're hearing records that you've mastered and they move, they move me. That's to me is like a big tick. It's like okay, this works in the real world. So I think that that's that's what gave me the confidence when I started hearing records out that, that I'd that I'd mastered and they were sounding great. So I was happy, you know. And feedback from clients as well. You know, if the clients happy, I'm happy.
0: Yeah. I'm curious about when you're mastering what do you find to be the biggest problem when you're getting a mix in is there one thing that keeps on popping up
1: i th- i think it's harshness mm. and it doesn't don't get me wrong it's not it's not all the time but i think because digital audio is just so unforgiving it's like whatever you put into it the same thing comes back out when you you've got and particularly with a lot of these sort of as a as I was saying before about people making records in their bedrooms, that a lot of them are using like cheap Chinese condenser mics, and they're hyping the, the high mids. So when you start layering lots and lots of like when you are multi-tracking with those type of microphones into digital, it's inevitable that you're going to get that harshness. So I, I I always think like that's one of the key things that I'm always I'm always coming across with with a lot of these records that people are making. In sort of less than ideal environments, that, that that harshness. So, you know, I want to be able to crank a record up and really still enjoy it. You know, do you get do you hear those records where you turn them up and it's like just a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. So that's one of my sort of one of my sort of uh, quality control tests. Let's say is like, can I just crank this up and still really enjoy it? And um, but thankfully, we've got some amazing tools nowadays that we can resolve those issues with you know thankfully
0: what's interesting mike is that you mentioned the tools and anybody can get them for the most part i mean there there are some that are just you know mastering engineers know about and they they have but there's a lot of good tools that are really powerful and i think in a way too powerful because what ends up happening is if you don't know what you're doing you're going to make it worse instead of better
1: exactly yeah and this is, you just hit the nail on the head where you said powerful, the pa- they're so powerful that you, you can really ruin a project with them because they do so much. And if you take something like um, uh, Isotope's Ozone, let's say, is a good example of this, where what it's a brilliant plugin. I love Isotope, their the, the plugins are amazing. The problem we've got with something like Ozone is that it does so much and it's so powerful that there's a tendency for, you know, when it's used in the wrong hands for people to do too much and it's just as important particularly at the mastering stage to know when to do very little when to be hands off and that's just as important as when to roll your sleeves up and start digging into something so i think that's where these tools are when they're misused which is they're so easy to misuse that's where people are coming up against problems with them you
0: know when i started to write books i started to more well I was always the same way where I would go in and all the mastering sessions no matter what and, and sit and, and watch. But eventually I became friends with most of the major mastering engineers and some of the minor ones and would go hang with them. And I still do today. I'm close. I can walk to two major ones right up the street. Yeah, really. But I also had an, an office for four or five years in Oasis Mastering. So every day... I would sit in on them with the mastering engineers if it was unattended. And one of the things that jumped out at me always was how little they were doing, or it seemed like they were doing, and yet how big a difference it would make.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that—that's exactly the key, isn't it? Of of knowing, and it's sometimes difficult to do because you know you want to. Uh, there's there's a there's a tendency to when a project comes in, you wanna send something back that blows them away. So it's like there's a if you're not careful, there's a tendency of like of like being too keen to make a difference. Whereas actually some projects come in and they don't really need a lot of work. So that they're the they're the examples of like where it's important to know when to not do something and protect what's there. And okay, it might not be massively different than what was sent in, but it's the right thing to do. So I think that's something that I learned quite early on is don't do stuff just because you think it might impress the client, you know? Yeah.
0: yeah, Right. Is most of your work mastering now? Do
1: you know what? I think it's about 50, 50, and it has been for for the last sort of probably five or 10 years really. But I tend to do a lot of, a lot of the projects that I'm mixing, I'm also mastering. In fact, I'd say 99% of those projects. And I think that works really well for labels because I can go in uh, particularly with projects where they've, they've sort of lost their way a little bit. So they might get to that 80% point and they're like, this shit, this doesn't sound right. What can we do? I can go in and say, you know, what, what pot of money is there? There I can deliver this to the factory for manufacturing, finished, done, mixed, mastered for that pot of money. So it's like, there's no variables. There's no unknowns. Cause you know what it's like sometimes when stuff goes to master and it can cost twice as much as what they thought. Yeah. Or so I do a lot of those all-in deals where I can I can just take a project a problem project or a problem that a, a project that's that's been nearly finished and just deliver the right thing for the right budget.
0: Okay, Mike. So I find this interesting. Would you be mastering as you're mixing?
1: Ah, okay. Good question that because this is something that I don't advise people do, but I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, And and I, it took me a while to do this, but what I what I discovered um, and what you'll be obviously aware of as well is that when you send stuff for mastering, it can often change the balance of the mix. Mm, yeah, A classic example of that would be the vocal tends to get pushed into the mix when the, you add the limiting on or what I found is, um, I found that really frustrating when I used to send stuff to get cut. It's like, obviously, and that's why we always used to do vocal up mixes and that type of thing. So what I started doing is when I was talking about mock masters before mock mastering or whatever, that would be something that I would put on my mix bus when I'm mixing. Once I get to say like, once the mix is like 80% there, let's say, I'd start thinking almost like put a mastering hat on and go, okay, what's likely to happen at mastering? And there would be a limiter involved, usually maybe a little bit of EQ or something. So I would add that to my mix bus so I could start to hear the mix in a mastered way, like a mock mastered way. And so those, those problems though, that, that those changes in the balance that would often happen at mastering, I would already, already flag them while I'm mixing. So straight away, I can push the vocal a bit. I can do any adjustments that the limiter has changed for me. And even if I don't end up mastering the record and I then take that limiter off and send it somewhere, the chances are that those problems won't arise because I've already heard it with the limiter on yeah but now what I do is um I've been doing that for so long that the two processes mixing and mastering and now I just merge them into one but the danger is is that I try not to think about mastering at all until the mix is firing you know I want the mix to be 90% there before I go anywhere near a limiter the danger, as, as you're aware, is if you start mixing through a limiter, you rely on that limiter then, you know, and if you take it off, the mix falls apart. But what I do is, and it's difficult to do because it's harder. So, you know, we're inherently lazy people. So, you know, we, we want, you have to work harder to get the mix to sound great without the limiter. So that means when you get to that 90% point and you put it on, it takes it to a whole new level. So... I've just got into the habit of doing that now where I'll hold off, hold off with the limiter until the mix is right. And then I'll add the mastering on in the last 10% of the mix and adjust the mix accordingly. You know, I guess if I've got the luxury of time, what I will then do is I'll deliver that for approval. And then maybe in a day or two, I'll go back and I'll just check that the mock mastering is correct. Cause sometimes there might be a few little tweaks to do, Um, but it's very rarely much, much different than the final master then.
0: Okay, well, that brings up a philosophical question. (laughs) Most of the major mixers that I know are going to use lots of bus processing. Yeah. So the mix they deliver is, for the most part, mastered, that they deliver to mastering. Yeah. But most mastering engineers, rightfully so, like some headroom and they like some ability to do stuff. But you know what? Once the artist and the label signs off on it, you can't take any of that bus processing off, or everything is going to sound different, as you know. So, where do you stand on
1: that? Well, the, see, the thing is, I like a challenge. You see, so I love this <laughs> when when mixers deliver stuff that sounds amazing, and it's got limiter on it. I I always ask them for for one without the limiter, and then I do like I I basically just battle away until I am until I can better it, and that's can take. 20 minutes so it can take a couple of hours to do but I find that there's pretty much 90 odd percent of the time I can do something better but it's just it's not it's not always easy because as you say a lot a lot of mixes are delivering really great sounding records with limiting on and it's almost like you don't want to touch it but I think it's worth spending the time to just see if we can get it even better rather than just presuming that you know we won't be able to do anything better than that.
0: Okay, here's another one for you. What are you delivering? What kind of files are you delivering? Are you delivering a separate streaming master?
1: Yes, yeah. So this can be a bit of a minefield, can't it? I mean, I really do wish that the industry would just come up with some sort of standard that all these platforms can can tie in with and it would make our lives so much simpler. But at the moment, we have got a situation where – We've got to be careful and consider all the different platforms involved, and sometimes that means delivering a different master for a particular thing. Now, let, as a core, what I would normally deliver is, I mean, obviously, physical format is not as popular now, but there would, if we're doing CD, then there'd be a DDP master for that, and then, then obviously, vinyl has become, you know, more popular again now. So I do different vinyl masters. With more dynamic range, particularly um, often different EQ as well, depending on the project really. And then for uh, digital platforms, we'd be doing master for iTunes mm-hmm. um, file, which would cover all the high definition platforms, so Spotify, is Tidal, and all those. And then you know, there's still a lot of 16 bit platforms out there that can't accept high definition files, so I do a master for those as well. Uh, a good example of some other ones that we might do is, for instance, I did a record recently and they put up um, a little taster of it on Instagram. And um, Instagram, are uh, there I don't know what, they're, uh, what, what they use, their algorithms, but there's a lot of distorted content on there. I don't know if you've noticed, there's a lot of yeah. clipping. So I sometimes will, will deliver. I'll just say, are you doing any Instagram content? If you are, I will do you like a a bespoke master for that to make sure that we maximize that without any distortion. SoundCloud, another culprit, you know, sometimes we have to do like minus four DB masters for that. I don't know if they, they might've changed that recently, but at one point it was just sounded terrible SoundCloud. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's, there's, there's a bit of a handful of, of files to deliver and to get, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we want it, we want projects to sound as good as possible on everything. So if it means spend another 10, 20 minutes pulling some files together to suit that, then great. But the problem I've found is that a lot of the, the particularly the independent distributors, they're a bit lazy, some of them, with what files they're using. So often, even if I send a a folder full of well-labeled files, they might just pick out the 16-bit file and use that for everything. Mm, Yeah, Like, it's not far from ideal, you know? That's out of my hands, unfortunately. So all I can do is present a bunch of files and tell them what they're suitable for, and then I'm at the mercy of the distributor to use it wisely. You, know?
0: you have the same problem to some degree with metadata too.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: If they're in charge of the metadata, you don't know who's going to be doing it. Many times it's the last person hired at a label, so they don't really know anything, and they get confused by some of the different formats, what they want, and they just don't fill
1: it in. Well, this was the beauty of um, the DDP format because once it left the mastering house, no one could do, no one could mess with it. Yeah. So it would go to the factory, and then you could guarantee that the CD that you pick up in the shop would be straight off the DDP, no metadata changed, or you know. So it was pretty bulletproof, really. But now, obviously, with this digital, the whole digital platform thing, it's opened that up again. Into, as you say, pro- you know, people make mistakes, and it's frustrating. So.
0: Let's talk mixing for a second. Are there any plugins that you know you're going to use every mix, no matter what?
1: <laughs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Plugins like this, we are overwhelmed, aren't we, with plugins right now? There's so many, so many great plugins. And um, what I find and what I've always done is like once a year, usually first couple of days of January, I have a, a plugin call and I just go through. My plugin um, folder and anything that I haven't used for a few months just gets put in in the in the unused folder because it kills your workflow having too many plugins. It's just you know at the end of the day if I if I want to EQ a kick drum, let's say for instance, the last thing I want to do is pull up a menu of fifty EQs. Yeah, you know it's just stupid. We, you know we we used to work on analog consoles with one EQ, you know for the whole board and we never complained we just carried on a mixed records and you know we may have a bit of outboard gear maybe but generally we used the same eq for everything and it wasn't a problem so what i try and do is i have have um, about 10 eqs i have five that i would call more surgical and then i would have five sort of that i would call more of like enhancement vibey eqs and that those 10 might change they might evolve over time but i try not to have more than that because it's just unnecessary, and it, it it just means that if I want to EQ that kick drum, it takes me two minutes. I will just go and grab one EQ it and move on. So I try not to have too many, but I do have. Uh, I do pick very carefully, and some of the ones that I will be using on everything would be. Uh, the, I mean, the Isotope stuff's great. Um, a lot of the like the Nectar, I love the the thing in Nectar where it will track pitch. So I do a lot of notch filtering. With um, monophonic material, stuff like that. It's perfect for that. Um, Soothe, I don't know if you use Soothe. What an incredible plugin that is amazing. Um, And that's one of the tools that's perfect for that deharshing thing that I was talking about earlier. Perfect for that. The Sonic stuff I've used for years, um, really clean, you know, because especially when you start layering plugins, a lot of the time you don't want a plugin to have character, you just want it to do a, a job. So that that Sonax stuff's great for clean, you know, clean work, um, and obviously the UA, UAD stuff is amazing. Um, I mean, you probably see there's there's not a massive amount of outboard gear in here now. Um, this used to be just full of all sorts of stuff, and over the years, I have just realised they got the U A D stuff and realised actually I wasn't using a lot of the outboards. So that's brilliant for character. The wave stuff's great. The Plug In Alliance. They've been doing some great work, haven't they, over the last few years? How about effects? Effects, okay. Um, I'll tell you. Um, hang on, I've got my computer there. So <laughs> <do> so. <laughs> Again, the UAD stuff's great for effects, especially the old sort of outboard reverb stuff. You know, the old the old AMS stuff and all that. Um, but the uh, the reverb. I recently discovered that seventh heaven pro oh nice yeah i'm finding it's a, it's a Bricasti, um emulation so i haven't turned the brocasty on for a while because i've just been using that um which says a lot because it, that's a, the brocasty is incredible yeah. um so that's one of my go-to reverbs now for vocals what else have we got for reverbs um it's a lot of UAD stuff in here, actually, The particularly like the stu- Capital Chambers.
0: Oh, my favorite. Yeah.
1: Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I'm still using the, the plate, the, the EMT 140 plate. What else is there? there? The Lexicon 480, obviously, is, does does a great job. Again, Isotope stuff's great for delays, some really clever delays. Sound toys stuff is great. I mean, there, there is, I say, there's so much, there's so many great plugins. The attendant, there's a danger of just, Having too much stuff. And I just find it slows me down. So I'll, by all means, I'll try things out when the, when the, you know, as and when things, new plugins arrive. But um, I'll usually not add stuff in unless I really need it. You know, I mean, I need another EQ right now, like a hole in the head. I've just got two, way too many. And I've got, I could just do, I could work forever more with the EQs that I've got now. So, but now and again, something comes up. That's clever. And I mean, the, some of the dynamic EQs, like, I mean, I know Soothe would be in this category. um, The McDSP AE400 or AE600 or one of those, I use those all the time. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. You know, I mean, yeah. mainly stuff that I can't do out of the box. That's where I find plugins are invaluable, you know, things that you just cannot do yeah. outside of the computer. You know,
0: do you have a favorite mixing trick? Is there a technique that you use every, almost every mix?
1: I mean, the, I wear ninety nine percent of my projects are vocal, led. So I'd say, and this isn't really a trick. I'm sure a lot of mixers do this, but for people that are coming into the industry and trying to work out, you know, how to get great mixes, I guess one of my biggest discoveries was to leave the vocal in place all the time. Get I start with the vocal all the time, and get that in the right place. And then everything else just comes afterwards. I start building things around it. But, you know, I, t- I try and keep the vocal in like a solo safe state mm-hmm. so that everything I'm working on, whether it's guitars, keys, drums, anything else, the vocal is always there. So, you know, for, for experienced mixers, that isn't really a trick. I'm sure everyone's doing that, but it was something that I wish someone would have told me earlier on. Um, and, you know, this that way, and and as you're adding things in around the vocal sometimes you find the vocals getting lost and then there's the danger to jump to the vocal and eq it and i yeah. you always have to stop yourself and go no hang on a minute i know that vocal's great so let's think about why that's happened and go back to what i've just added in and try and sort that
0: out you know in, in relation to that whenever i do q a's there's inevitably a question about how come my vocal doesn't fit in the mix when you query you find out what it is is they do put up the whole mix and then put the vocal in at the end and of course it's either going to be too loud or too soft that's never going to fit you know so yeah yeah
1: so but i'd say like that i mean that that would be obvious to to a lot of a lot of mixers but but to someone coming into the industry i think i just wish someone would have told me that like five years earlier you know would have saved me a lot of stress yeah yeah i got it
0: so covid hasn't affected you too much because you're doing everything remote anyway right
1: yeah, I mean, I I feel really thankful that you know this year's been really busy and we've we, we've we've been doing everything remote really. I've had a couple of visits from from artists, but um, I'm doing doing a lot of live stream sessions, so streaming the Mixbus bus to to um to clients, and that's always a fast. But we we were doing this anyway, you know, before the COVID thing hit. Um, so nothing's really changed here. Well, well, well wait, let's come back to that.
0: What are you doing exactly with live streaming?
1: So we're, we're using. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of your listeners will be using this as well. Um, I was for ages using NiceCast, um, but it wasn't. It was wasn't great. It was like there was quite a delay, and um, it was finicky to use. So I've just switched over to Listen to. It's a company called Audio Movers. Oh yes, right. Yeah, yeah. And um, so. And I think I'm pretty sure there's a couple of other companies doing this now because there's the technologies there where you can get the, the latency right down to, you know, 0.3 of a second or something. So when I press play on the desk, it's it's streaming straight away to the to the client. And, you know, years ago, before we were doing this, we'd have an email with a list of things saying, oh, can you turn the snare up? Can you turn the guitar down or whatever? And it's like, well, how much do I turn the snare down? How much? Like... And then, so you do a version and they might go, oh, you've turned it down too much. And can you take it back up again? And So a hundred emails later, (laughs) you've you've got like, you get there in the end, but with a streaming session, it's so much quicker because they can say, okay, can you turn the snare down? I'd be like, well, have a listen to this. What do you think of that? Okay. Too much. Yeah. Back up. Done okay
0: i i see when you're talking live streaming i thought you were somehow feeding facebook or instagram or youtube or something like that but this is just client between you and the client
1: private streaming sessions yeah sorry yeah yeah i should have explained
0: last question what is the best piece of business advice that either someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way
1: quality control now i'll explain that because that doesn't mean much me just saying that but what I found is that you're only as good as your last job. So what I try and do and what I've always tried to do, I realized this very early on in my career, just listening to other producers that I was assisting, is that you know, you deliver one crappy job and the phone stops ringing. So you've got to keep that quality control up. And the way that I try and do that is I, I try and approach every single job as if it's gonna be the best record that I've ever made. and often that obviously that's not always going to happen but if you approach it in that way the chances are you're going to deliver something great and if I look back now over my whole career the reason why I've kept busy I mean there may be a little bit of luck involved but I think you make your own luck and and I think I've basically kept clients happy just delivered what they want and it's not always easy but I've made sure that you know I've delivered quality work over and over again And people keep calling you back and people tell their friends. And I don't think there's any other way to do it. I really don't. So I think really what I guess the key thing is is to be careful what you say yes to, because some projects you're probably not the best producer or the best mixer for. Some projects, you know, if if I'm trying to mix a project that hasn't been produced well, or the song's no good, or the performances are poor, chances are my mix isn't going to be great. So it's like, do I really want to do that project and put my name on it? so even though it's really difficult to say no sometimes the projects i think that um it's really important to just make sure that whatever you're agreeing to get involved with you can deliver something amazing and I, i'm fairly confident that that's what's kept me in kept me busy just being very cautious about making sure that i can deliver something amazing on every job i wish it wasn't like that in a way i, w- I wish that it was as easy as just you know waking up in the morning having fun in the studio and and going home and everyone's happy, but it's not always, it doesn't always work like that, does it? But that's just the way I've, the only way that I've found that, that works, you know? Yeah. It also as well, I think like you, I never, I always feel like I'm still trying to prove myself, even though I've delivered some, some big records and stuff over time. And it's like, it never stops that thing of having to prove myself all the time. So I I accept it now. It's fine. It's no big deal, but it's just something to be aware of is that it never stops. You don't get to a point and you go, oh, I'm fine now. I can relax.
0: You can find out more about Mike at mikecave.co.uk. That's mikecave, C-A-V-E, all one word, mikecave.co.uk. You can also find out about Loft Mastering at loftmastering.com. Loftmastering, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyonercircle.com where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.